God, we just, um, we acknowledge your presence in the room and we want to see your presence transform us today. Um, so would you use me? Would you use the ways that, uh, the things that you have taught me this week, the things that you have put on my heart, um, and would you open us to what you have to say in your word this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Like Chris said, uh, today is the last Sunday of the sermon series. Not last week, but today. Today is the last one, week nine. And if you haven't been around this summer, this series was all about looking at different areas of our life that we should be intentionally preparing for an outpouring from the Holy Spirit. Okay, and we started with a foundation of prayer, moving to our schedule, then to your heart and your mind, to your family, to this spiritual armor that you wear to defend yourself against the enemy, then to your wallet. And then last week, Chris asked the question, is your neighbor prepared? And if you missed any of those, I strongly encourage you, go back, listen to them, okay? They're on YouTube. You can just look up Mercy Road Church Northwest. You can also go on our podcast, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can find all of our past sermons there. Definitely recommend checking them out. Today we are asking the question, is your home prepared? Is your home prepared? And I don't mean is your house clean up, okay? Because I know for most of us, our house is not clean, okay? My house is not clean this morning. I'll just can be the first one to confess that this morning. There's laundry to be done, okay? But the home is going to be serving as a term that's a little bit more broad. It's going to serve a, a broad concept and posture for you to be in as a person, rather than just talking about the specific place, but more of a posture. So we're going to be talking today about the practice of hospitality. And this is straight from the way of Jesus, so we're going to look at his life and what he teaches us about hospitality. So turn in your Bibles, if you have a Bible with you, to Luke chapter 19. You can also look at the screen and follow along there. If you don't have a Bible, we have one for you. Please, please, please take one if you do not have a Bible. Just go to the desk, say, hey, I don't have a Bible and I want one, and we will give one to you to take home. Luke chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Okay, He wasn't staying in Jericho. He was just on his way somewhere else. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Fun fact for all the people who uh, grew up in Sunday school, the Greek actually isn't clear on who's short. Jesus could have been short, guys. Zacchaeus may not have been the wee little man. I hate to break it to you, but that's, that's, that's the thing there. Okay, so, so he ran ahead. Zacchaeus runs forward and climbed a sycamore tree to see him. All right, the song? Lord, he wanted to see. Okay. Um, since Jesus was coming that way, and when Jesus reached the spot that he was headed to, probably to teach, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, like he knew his name, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In this story, we see a very bold Jesus, like super bold. Like he's really going out on a limb here, huh? 
Ah, Z on a limb. Okay. So Zacchaeus was among the most hated types of people in that area. Okay. Nobody liked Zacchaeus. Why? Because he was a tax collector. Okay. In the first century Near East, at this time, Israel was being occupied by the Roman Empire. Okay. So that's what was going on at that time. And instead of sending some Italians over to, you know, collect the taxes for Rome, instead they were like, you know what? What if we just recruited some people that already live here? And they'll collect the taxes for us. And so there were people in this region that were like, ooh, a way to make money? Sure, I'm in. Let's do this, okay? And so what would happen here, let's just, let's just put ourselves in a situation, okay? The tax collectors basically sold out their people to work for Rome and get rich, okay? So let's just say I'm a tax collector, okay? And you guys are the people of Israel, okay? And I show up and I'm here and Rome says, hey, the tax on your farm is 50%. Okay, 50%. I could easily say as a tax collector, and they did do this. They almost always did this. I could say, hey, you know what? Put another 25% for me. That 25% belongs to me. It's a, call it a processing fee, if you will. Okay, like that, that's going to be for me. And you would have to do as I say, because I have Roman legionnaires behind me. And they're back in my place. So if, if you say, no, I'm not going to give that to you. You've done nothing for that money. You're going you're gonna to get killed. And so these tax collectors would be stealing money from all of their brothers and sisters, people that they grew up with, people that they have lived with their whole life. And so you can imagine the, the feeling of betrayal that is there. These thieves, these traitors that subjected their brothers and sisters to live off of extremely little. But Jesus shows up and he wants to eat with him. This may have been a cute Sunday school story, okay? But I tell you, the, the reality of this story is not nearly as cute. For Jesus to just go out and find this person that everyone hates and have a meal with him. The best way to put it in our context and feel what the people felt, let's just, this is the only time I'll ask you to do this in church, okay? Think of a person that you really don't like, okay? Just think of that person, let them come to mind, okay? I know we all have them, or maybe a specific type of person. This doesn't have to be a specific individual. Think of that person. And now imagine you're standing next to this person, and Jesus shows up. Like, literally, Jesus is standing in front of you. And he's, he looks at you, and he looks at this person, and he says, you know what, I want to have dinner with you. And he doesn't want to have dinner with you. He wants to go have dinner with this person. I can imagine some of us would feel a little bit of turmoil. We'd say, we'd say, wait, Jesus, you don't understand what you're doing. You don't understand who they are. I know who they are. They've done this, 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 X, Y, Z. Why are you choosing to have dinner with someone like that when I've done all these things for you? I've done so much for you. Why won't you have dinner with me? So now imagine, let's take it a step further. Let's say all of us in the room hate the same person. Okay, there is one person that all of us just can't stand, and they're in the room with us. And Jesus shows up. Jesus walks into our auditorium, and he goes right past all of us to the person that we all dislike. And he says, you know what? I want to have dinner with you. There is a feeling there of like, Jesus, why would you choose them? Like, why wouldn't you choose any, any number of us that we've done a lot of good things for you? We love you. We, we worship you every Sunday. Like, we've done the right things. Why won't you have dinner with us? That is what they were experiencing. Tax collectors were at the very bottom of the social ladder because they were just so hated. The bottom of the social ladder was tax collectors and prostitutes. They were at the same level. Nobody liked them. Nobody wanted to be near them. Nobody wanted to be associated with them. They were unclean. 
But what really makes this important is not just who Jesus is interacting with, but what he is wanting to do with him. It's a meal. In all cultures, this is not just in the Near East, okay? The, the meal is what brings people together. When you invite someone to dinner, you are inviting them into your home. You are saying, hey, let's, let's come together. Let us have food together. Let's spend a couple hours talking. Like, that's a very intimate, nerve-wracking thing for some people. In fact, the word companion comes from the roots, com meaning with, and pan meaning bread, your companion is the person that you are with over a meal. That is your companion. And let me just tell you, the people of that region, okay, well, that's true for all cultures, but the people of this region held this belief on steroids, okay? New Testament scholar Scott Barchi writes this about it. He says, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the first century. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to eat. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person became a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with who had shared a table was viewed as unacceptable. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. I'll tell you right now, rabbis were not companions with tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> They were not on the same playing field. You would never find a rabbi saying, hey, I want to engage in friendship and unity and intimacy with this, this person on the bottom level. Because in their mind, I have, to stay, I have to stay clean. I have to live above reproach. I have to stay away from those types of people. And the Pharisees especially didn't like them because in their understanding of God in that time, they actually believed that their lack of devotion to God, the tax collector's sin, was the reason that Rome was occupying them. It was their fault that Israel was not thriving. If we ever see stories and the Pharisees are kind of bagging on the people that are sinners and we're like, oh, why would they do that? You know why? It's because in their theology, they literally thought that it was their fault that Rome was there. They said, man, if you just weren't sinning, then Rome wouldn't be occupying us right now. We wouldn't be suffering. We wouldn't be persecuted. And so they really don't like the tax collectors. But Jesus shows up, a rabbi, and he says, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Several chapters before this, in Luke 7, we see Jesus in a similar situation. Okay, in verse 33. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. It's kind of a mean thing to say. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard. Yes, they called Jesus a glutton and a drunkard. That's what they called him. Uh, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, okay, the Pharisee's going out there. He's like, hey, Jesus, you're a good dude. Come have dinner with me. He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in that town who lived a sinful life, okay, so she was a prostitute, that's what that kind of infers there. She learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman that she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Uh-oh, uh-oh, gonna lay the law down. 
Simon, not knowing what's coming, he's like, tell me, teacher, tell me, what do you, what do you got to say? And Jesus says, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Denarii is a day's wages. So imagine a year and a half worth of your salary versus 50 days of your salary. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. And so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Obvious answer. Simon replied, I suppose the one who had a bigger debt forgiven? You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Good job. Right answer for Simon. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, which was what the host was supposed to do, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a greeting kiss, what the host was supposed to do. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. Again, another thing that is responsible for the host to do. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So once again, we see Jesus engaging in mealtime, in hospitality with an outcast, this time a prostitute, another person at the very bottom of the ladder. And I think it's interesting that we have these two stories and they line up perfectly with verse 34 at the beginning of that passage. It said, the son of man came eating and drinking and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard. What? A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Isn't it interesting that the people that are at the very bottom of the social ladder, Jesus shows up and he says, you know what? I want to hang out with those people. Those are the people that I am going to go to. John Mark Comer brings these two stories together quite well, and there's, this, there's a statement about the Son of Man in both of these passages. The, the one with Zacchaeus, it says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, right? And in the other story, it says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And so John Mark Comer, he merges these two with this wonderful quote. It says, Jesus' mission was to seek and to save the lost, and his method was to eat and drink with people. Jesus saved people one meal at a time. One meal at a time. That's my kind of Jesus, right? I'm such a foodie. I'm like, let's go. I'm down for that. That's, that's the kind of evangelism I want to be a part of. For Jesus, the meal, the table, the home, whatever you want to call it, that was his means of including the social outcast, bringing them into the kingdom, into the family. In fact, that's why he says to the people in the story of Zacchaeus, that's why he says, hey, he too is a son of Abraham, he too is part of the family of God. You might think he's out, but actually he's a part of the family too. And as a part of the family of God, he deserves to have the opportunity to show hospitality like Abraham. Let me explain that. Like I said, there's a very big cultural emphasis in that region on hospitality, and it comes from Abraham, the forefather of Israel. In Genesis 18, we find the reason, we find the impetus behind such a great cultural devotion to hospitality. This is in Genesis 18. Let's just read this really quick. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby, and when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground, these three guys that he doesn't know. And he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, 
my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought. Then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. And so Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it to break some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. So we might read that passage and we're like, okay, cool. Like Abraham was nice to some people. He let them into his house. He gave them some food, super kind of him. Great. But let's just take a look at what really happened here. If we want to understand why these people were so devoted to hospitality, why the meal was so important, we need to understand what's happening. Let's start here. I want you to think of the excuses that you might have to invite someone over for dinner or, or to show someone hospitality. The excuses you have to not do those things. Maybe a long day at work. Maybe you're low on money. Maybe you're tired or maybe you don't know them that well and so it's going to be weird. Maybe it's inconvenient. Whatever it is, whatever your excuse might be, I guarantee you Abraham had a better one. Okay, you don't see this in our passage, but at the end of the passage right before, let's just look at it. This is chapter 17, verse 24 through 26. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. And his son, Ishmael, was 13. Abraham and his son, Ishmael, were both circumcised on that very day. Skip ahead just one verse to our passage. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. I wonder why he was sitting down. He probably needed a little bit of a rest day. Like maybe, maybe a few days, maybe a week. Like I imagine Abraham just experienced something very traumatizing, okay? Abraham had a not great day. And so he's sitting at his tent. It's a super hot, it's super hot outside. They're out in the desert. He has a tent. And so he's just like, I imagine he's just like sitting there. Like he's sitting by the tent and he's like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna sit here for a while. Like you guys go do your thing. I'm just gonna chill over here, okay? I'm gonna recover and then we're gonna be fine. We're gonna move on and pretend this didn't happen, right? Okay, so he's sitting there, and that leads me to my next observation. As he is recovering, as he is probably in lots of pain, I noticed this, and I'm challenged by this, is that the three foreigners didn't ask for any help. They're just standing over here on a journey, and Abraham, who's recovering from one of the most intense surgeries of his life, looks over and, he's, and he rushes to them. He hurries to them. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me take care of you. He hurries over. He bows before them. He insists on taking care of them. Please let me give you some water. Let me get your feet washed. Get some rest. Oh, let me get, some, get, get you some food for your journey. Let me help you out. No, please lie down. I don't need to lie down. No, that's not important. No, you, you take a rest. You've had a long journey. There was no obligation for him to do this. There was no expectation for him to do this. Abraham simply desired to show love in that way. It was his honor, his privilege. It blessed him to be able to do that. Jesus said, it was better to give than to receive. And Abraham knew this long before Jesus ever showed up. He's like, I would rather give and experience that blessing than receive. And so he hurries into the tent and is like, hey, Sarah, get three seahs of our best flour and make some bread. 
If you're wondering what a seah is, let me put that into perspective for you. Three seahs of flour, that's around 60 pounds of flour. That much flour, I'm not a bread expert, but that much flour is supposedly supposed to make around 80 loaves of bread. For three people, who is eating that much bread? Like, I can't even hold that much bread. Like, how am I, what am I supposed to do with all this? I'd be sitting there, I'm like, do you expect me to eat this now? Can I take some to go? Can I get a box? Like, like what is going on? Like, I'm telling you what, I love bread as much as the next guy. Big fan of Texas Roadhouse Rolls. I could eat all of those baskets all day, okay? But 26 loaves? That's a lot of bread. That's like, that's so much bread. And in addition to that, it doesn't stop there. Abraham's like, ah, you know what? That bread, not enough, okay? So he runs to the herd. Yes, he runs post-surgery. He runs and gets a choice tender calf and some milk and curds and brings all of these things over. He's like, let me just give you all the food we got. Let me get you the best of the best. We need to see that Abraham and Sarah are going above and beyond. So much food, giving ridiculous amounts of this food that they would otherwise have used on themselves and their people. They had servants. They had lots of people in their tribe, if that's what you want to call it. A tribe is a good word for it. There's just tons of people that they could have fed, but they were like, you know what? Nah, let's just give 80 loaves to these three dudes that we don't know. And so this, this radical hospitality started a cultural value on it a cultural value of hospitality. You bring people in. That was what they were all about in Israel. You bring people in. And so when we see these stories of Jesus showing and receiving hospitality to and from tax collectors, sinners, strangers, outcasts, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to bring people in. He's trying to say, hey, you stranger, hey, you foreigner, hey, you outcast, come in. You are welcome here. The title sinner was a very broad term used for a variety of reasons, but mostly it was meant to portray the picture that they weren't in. Okay, it was just used as a label of like, hey, you're not in. We're the people of God over here. You're not in. You're not a part of us. You're not a part of God's people. You're not a part of what God's doing. You go stay outside. But Jesus shows up and he says, no, 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 no. I want them in. I want them in. Author Joachim Jeremiah says, to invite a person to a meal was an honor. It was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. So Jesus shows up saying, you have taken hospitality, something meant to bring people in. That's what Abraham did. He tried to bring people in, show them love, something meant to be an offer, an honor, an offer of peace, an offer of trust, brotherhood, forgiveness, just like that quote said, and turned it into something. What they did is they turned hospitality into something that divides and pushes people to the margins. Hospitality was supposed to bring people in, Jesus says. But all you've done with hospitality is push people out. You have corrupted the gift of hospitality. What better way to communicate the beauty of the kingdom than this image right here of a meal? That quote that I just shared, it continues saying, the inclusion of sinners in the community of salvation achieved in table fellowship is the most meaningful expression of the message of the redeeming love of God. God says, my kingdom is all about redemption. My kingdom is all about bringing the outsider in. And you want to know how I'll show you that? I'll show you through a meal because that's what meals do. 
For Jesus to bring a sinner to the table to extend love and peace to him and to her, it was everything. And I want to make note of this, that it wasn't to try and convert them. Jesus didn't invite them over to, to this house and say, hey, like, let's have a meal together so that he could convert them or change them or get them to stop doing what they were doing and change all these things. His only agenda was love. His only agenda was to welcome them in. Henry Nouwen says that hospitality means primarily the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people but to offer them space where change can take place. It is not to bring men and women over to our side, but to offer freedom not disturbed by dividing lines. I love that right there, to offer freedom not disturbed by dividing lines. There's a podcast that I listened to, and the host told a story of when he had gone to Israel. He had gone into Israel with a group of 54 Americans. There's 54 of them. They're on this trip. They're going around seeing the Holy Land. It's super exciting. And the guide takes them over this hill. I mean, they're just kind of following along because they don't know Israel. So they're trusting him to just go where it's supposed to be going. So they follow him. And he takes them over this hill. And they see in the distance, they see a Bedouin village, a Muslim village. And they're like, uh, where, are you, where are you taking us? What are you, what are you doing? Like, the Holy Land's this way. You know what I mean? Like, I thought we were going to go to the temple, go see all the things. Like, why are we going this direction? And as they're walking, they see a bunch of children running at them. And they're like, uh-oh, now I'm really freaking out. Like, like, guards going up. I'm nervous. What do these kids want? What are the kids going to do to us? Like, what is going on? And the kids, they, as they get closer, they see that they have smiles on their faces. And they grab their hands and they bring them into their village walking a half a mile with them, running into their village. And as they get in there, there's a woman that invites them into their home. And she's like, oh, come in, come in, come in, please get into my house. Please have food, like sit with us, have, have dinner. And obviously 54 Americans, she doesn't have enough food for everybody. So she gets all the people in her village. She's like, hey, let's all give these people some food. And so they're sitting there, 54 Americans, and they spend their day making homemade bread and homemade tea, and they bring it over to them until they literally ran out. The guy telling the story, he said they ran out of bread and tea. They literally didn't have anything left to give. And so while they're there, and they're talking, and they're doing all this stuff, and they're enjoying each other's company, and they're asking her questions, right? You know, as Americans do, they're so curious. We want to know what's going on. Like, oh. And so they ask the question, what do you want most in life? As if, like, this isn't enough. They're like, what do you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Kind of thing. And so the Americans, they ask this. And you know what she said? She let out her arms like this. And she said in Arabic, she said, peace. Why? Because a meal was an offering of peace. And she told them that she wishes she could just sit like this and dine forever. That they could sit together, that they could have no dividing lines. When they left, they were then told by their guide that if the village were to come under attack while they were there, the people of that village would have given their lives to protect them because they were their guests. Like hospitality is that huge. It's not just provide food and water and all these different things and, and some rest and all these different things. No, it's about providing protection as well. 
If people show up invading and they're in danger, the job is to protect them at all costs because they are your guest. And so we need to remember that when Jesus is talking about hospitality, when Jesus is talking about radical love for other people, including the strangers, the outcasts, and even the enemies, this is the kind of stuff that he's talking about. That's the kind of cultural hospitality that Jesus is like, hey, that's what we want to see. That's what the kingdom is all about, bringing the outsider in, removing dividing lines. And so I want to challenge you with this thought. It's a little bit of an extreme thought. If we're at our houses, if we're at home, and we see 54 Muslims coming over a hill, would our first reaction be to send our four- and five-year-old children to greet them a half a mile away? No. Would we lock our doors out of fear or would we invite them in and make a feast until we have no more groceries left? I think we'd lock our doors. I, th I think we would. I think it's safe to say that we would do that. And sure, you can say it's because of, we have a very different culture. All right? We don't do that in our culture. That's not, that's not a thing that we normally do. But I would challenge you on that and I would say Jesus' teachings should go beyond cultural tendencies. That's our cultural tendency. Why? Because in our culture, we have a fear of outsiders because we don't trust easily. We don't trust people that just show up. We assume that there's ulterior motives. We assume that they're dangerous. We assume that they're not safe. That is our first assumption. And so I think Jesus is showing us in these stories how to act and live out of an abundant, radical love, generosity, hospitality, trust, and self-sacrifice a love of strangers. That's actually what hospitality means in the New Testament. Like when Paul says in Romans 12, he says, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Or Peter in 1 Peter 1, he says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And many other places throughout the New Testament, it's the Greek word philoxenia. Okay, and it's a compound word with phylos, meaning love, and xenos, meaning stranger, the love of the stranger of the foreigner, of the outsider, of the outcast. You might be familiar with xenophobia. You might have heard that word before. That's the fear or dislike of the stranger or anything unfamiliar or strange for that matter. Anything you don't understand, push it away. I don't like it. I'm nervous about it. I don't like change, which I think describes our culture much better. All right, what do we tell our kids? Stranger danger. Don't talk to strangers. Don't talk to people that you don't know. When it comes to strangers, we in our American context are more apt to lock our door than to let someone in, to offer our thoughts and prayers than to offer our time and effort, to engage in minimal, safe, small talk in the lobby of the church or in the store than to share the intimacy and maybe awkwardness of a meal at our home. When it comes to strangers, I think we are too often selfish to enter into the mess of others, or maybe in this case, to invite their mess into our lives, we are willing to be kind and generous and hospitable to our good friends and to our families, the people that we trust, the people that are close, but the outsiders, they have to remain outside. Another small example of xenophobia in our culture. Okay, look around you right now. How many, how many chairs are there between you and the people that you don't know? Uh-oh. 
right? It doesn't matter the place or the occasion, whether we are alone or with family, we tend to avoid strangers. Like we just tend to do that. Like that's our natural tendency to do. We avoid sitting near them. We, we avoid conversation. We avoid eye contact. And when it happens, like when you're at the grocery store, you know what I'm talking about. And you like see someone, you make eye contact and you're like, you know, like, like you like give the awkward smile. You're like, uh, hi, you know, I don't know what to say to you. I don't know what to do. But like, what a weird concept it would be. Like, what if we were all sitting here? What if we came into church this morning? Let's say all these chairs were still here. But let's say every single one of us sat in these two sections and there was no empty seat. That would be really weird. <laughs> do it. Yeah, sit down. Sit. Yeah, move, move, move if you're willing. If you're willing, move, move in a little bit. Move closer to the stranger that you're sitting, that you're sitting near. Just move over a little bit. Don't be shy. We're all at church. They're not going to hurt you. I hope not. We hate being in situations in which we have to be close to the stranger. I know. I, I really know. I, I am the first one to say that I'm right there with you. I'll tell you, I may be a pastor and I may be a little bit, I, I may be outgoing, but at some level, I sometimes, I get, I get pretty freaked out by talking to strangers, okay? Don't get me wrong. I love people. I love learning about people, talking to them. Like, I love that kind of stuff. The stuff in the lobby, I love getting to know people. But sometimes I get really anxious, okay? I just got to be honest about that, okay? Have some empathy for me, okay? I, I really do feel that. And nothing, nothing puts you in that un uncomfortable position of talking to strangers than a baby, okay? I'm telling you right now, like, babies just make you a stranger magnet. Like, I don't know what it is, but suddenly everyone's like, oh, they have a baby? Perfect. I'm going to go tell them everything about the day. Let's go chat. Like, I want to go, go play with their baby. I want to go do all these things, especially when you have an outgoing baby. Like, my baby is the most outgoing person I've ever met. Like, and, and even more so, maybe this is the Holy Spirit trying to teach me something, because if she sees someone that she knows, she, like, looks at them with, like, this uneasy look. She's like kind of like staring at them. But if she sees someone that she doesn't know, hi, 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 hi. We're walking through the store and she's like, hi, hi. We're at, the, we're at the restaurant. We're sitting there eating dinner and someone sits down next to her and she goes, hi. And so now we're like, oh shoot, we have to talk to these people. We have to engage in conversation. I didn't want to do this. Like, Jude, what are you doing? Shh. So I'm like, oh, eat your food. Ha ha ha. You know, like, ha ha. She's so funny. Ha. She's so cute. Little one-year-old. And so then they start asking questions like, oh, how old is she? Oh, is it a boy or a girl? I can't tell because she didn't have pigtails up, you know? They're like, oh, uh, you know, is she, is she doing this? Is she doing this? Oh, it's so much fun. And they try to play with her. There's all this stuff. And so now I'm in this uncomfortable situation of like, I don't know you. I'm just trying to eat my food. I'm just trying to move on with my day. Like, we were literally at the grocery store once very recently. And this family was right next to us. And they had these young kids too. And these young kids were like getting all up in the face of my, my, my kid. They were like, oh, she's so cute. Ah. You know, like making funny faces, like this close to her face. I was like, okay, back away, sir. Like, you can just move off a little bit and we're going to go on our way. Like, that's, that's what it is. But it's interesting how being put in those situations for me, as someone who gets a little bit uncomfortable and uneasy in those situations, it showed me, it revealed to me my natural tendency to move away from the stranger rather than towards them. To exclude out of a fear of awkwardness or something rather than including them out of a deep love like Jesus. 
Avoiding the stranger, that might be our first instinct, our natural tendency in our cultural moment to push away the stranger unless we absolutely have to engage in small talk. But Jesus shows us a different way of being. One of self-denial that says, you know what, I don't feel comfortable, but I'm gonna do that anyways. Not of self-fulfillment. To give to not, and not to receive. To welcome, not to turn away. In fact, you may know that one of the primary functions of the church for hundreds upon hundreds of years was hospitality. The monasteries, the convents, the churches, they were the primary places to welcome people in need, whether it be a place to stay, food to eat, medical needs, you name it, the church, that was their responsibility. Before there were hospitals, there were churches. Thank God that's not the case anymore. I would not do very well. I'm not a good doctor. Um, But that's where we get the terms hospital, hotel, It's hospitality, showing love, inclusion, and a warm welcome to the stranger. So what does it mean to prepare our homes for an outpouring? It means hospitality. And hospitality is the means by which we prepare our homes, our tables, or whatever space for an outpouring of the Spirit. The love and showing of that love to the stranger, the foreigner, and the outcast, the people that we don't like all that much, bringing them in. Radical hospitality like Jesus and like Abraham. And when you prepare, when you are hospitable, you see the tangible, experienced outpouring from God in those scenarios, right? In the stories we just looked at, on Zacchaeus, the prostitute, the three men, Abraham, Jesus, they all received an outpouring. They all experienced it. Zacchaeus, he gave his life to Jesus and gave all his money back, four times the amount that he had taken. The prostitute, she was forgiven and given a place in the kingdom of God where she could be loved and seen and welcomed. The three men, they had enough bread to last them forever. And Abraham and Jesus, they were blessed to just be a part of it. They look around them and see, wow, I got to see God moving. Look at that. Look at how the kingdom works. They were blessed to be a partner with God. Churches, we see the kingdom being ushered in, just like Jesus said it would, right? He said, the kingdom of God is near. In the Lord's prayer, he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That kingdom, his will is that the outcasts would be brought into the family of God. That's his desire. That is the fundamental heart of the gospel. Is that the people who are outside of the family of God would be brought in. At one point, you were an outcast. You were brought in. That is what the kingdom is all about. Heaven has no dividing lines. And so our homes shouldn't either. Hospitality is about freedom from dividing lines. God does not discriminate. In the presence of God, when all this is said and done and the earth is completely restored after the resurrection of the dead, there will be no dividing lines. In fact, scripture tells us that we will see every tribe, every tongue, every nation bowing on bended knee before the king of kings. And so as the embodiment of that kingdom, that's what the church is. The church is literally just a physical, tangible embodiment of what the kingdom of God is all about. If heaven has no dividing lines, then this shouldn't either. Our homes should look the same. Our church building should look the same. Our metaphorical and our literal table should look the same as the kingdom of God. Young and old, 
rich and poor, black and white, single and married, Republican, Democrat, whatever dividing lines that you can come up with in your head, they're all gone in the presence of Jesus. Our call, our invitation, our command from Jesus is to live into that kind of kingdom here and now. And so I ask you the question for today, is your home prepared for that kind of outpouring? Is your table prepared for that kind of outpouring? You don't have to have a super nice, fancy place. Okay, Abraham had a tent. You don't need a, a super nice house. If you don't have a home that fits people in, then show hospitality in other ways. Like I know, I understand some of us might be in like a super small apartment and we're like, ah, I can't fit anybody in here. You can find a way. Find a way to create space. Find a way to engage in a meal with somebody. Hospitality is not limited to bringing people into your home. While it certainly is that. I mean, you can even look in these stories. The prostitute showed hospitality to Jesus at the Pharisee's house. Heck, Zacchaeus didn't ever invite Jesus over. Jesus invited himself. <laughs> kind of rude. Jesus was like, hey, dinner at your house. Let's go. Like, you don't have to bring people into your house if that's not like doable, if you don't have the means to do that. Shauna Nequist says in her book, Bread and Wine, the heart of hospitality is about creating space for someone to feel seen and heard and loved. It doesn't matter where or how you create this space for people so long as you created, typically over a meal, because what brings people together better than a meal? Church, if we do this, if we engage in the welcoming and the love of the stranger, we will see an outpouring from God. And I know that because for starters, that's how Jesus did it. But beyond that, for hundreds of years, the people of Jesus met around the table in the home over a meal. Do you want to know the primary way that the gospel spread from a bunch of outcast bummer disciples that were just like not cool from Judea to over half the population of the Roman Empire in just 300 years? How it brought a fall to paganism. I don't see anybody worshiping Zeus these days, but I see a lot of people worshiping Jesus. Do you want to know how they did that? Enduring loads and loads of brutal persecution, people dying, without any social or political power, no legal protection, without really good musicians on their worship team, no celebrity pastors, no internet, no, no printing press, they didn't have any books, no, no nice light design, no stage, no sound system, no church building. You know how they spread it across the globe. Dinner. Dinner. That has to be the most simple invitation to ministry that there has ever been. That is so easy. That is so doable. But that's how Jesus did it, one meal at a time. The gospel, the good news of life and life to the full, the good news to the poor, to the captives, to the blind, and the oppressed was spread from house to house, table to table. Just as I quoted before, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and he did it by eating and drinking. And so I believe that there is a takeaway this morning, whether you are a follower of Jesus or not. If you are a Christian, okay, talking to the Christians in the room, your discipleship, your formation into the likeness of Christ, your mission 
Your evangelism and reach to the lost, it starts with your ability and your willingness to be hospitable to all people. Not just your friends, not just your family, not just the people that you like hanging out with, but also the outcasts and the strangers. Why? Because that's what the kingdom of God is all about. Like, can we agree on that? Like we can say all day, we have no problem worshiping God and saying, God welcomes all people. God is so good for bringing in the sinners. But if you are not willing to bring in the sinners just like he did, then what are you doing? What are you doing? That's what the kingdom is all about. Following Jesus is not just about this information transfer to know more things. It's not about having an individualized relationship with Jesus where you feel good in your heart and now you can just be happy in your life because you've got hope at the end of the day. No, it's about so much more than that. The hope is good. The information is good. The the being with Jesus interpersonally is good, but it's so much more. It's about community. It's about people. And it's about bringing those outside of that community into it. And what better way to do it than food? There is no better way to bring people in than inviting them over for a meal. And for those that are saying, I'm an introvert, so I can't do what you're saying. You don't need to be an extrovert. You don't. It is a lie from the enemy that because you are an introvert, that therefore you cannot engage in the mission of God. Like, I just just wanna just say that right now. If you think that you can't engage in the mission of God because of X, Y, Z, that is a lie. There is nothing keeping you from engaging in the mission of God, from showing love and hospitality to your neighbor and to the outcast alike. because all you need is just to be a person of love, just like Jesus. You don't need to go door to door handing out pamphlets, holding up a sign on the street. You don't need to be a Christian influencer. You don't need to work at the church to reach people. You can do it over a meal. If you wanna follow Jesus, it's time to take church out of the building and into your home. It is time to gather around the table like Jesus did. Jerome H. Nehray, a former professor of theology at University of Notre Dame, this is what he said. He said, what the cross is to Jesus, the meal is to the early church. It's its primary symbol. What if this stage wasn't the primary symbol of our church community, but the table was? What if our community of believers wasn't centered around the fact that we all show up at the same place on Sunday mornings, but it was about the fact that we were actually a community of people doing life together, doing ministry together, bringing kingdom together. So maybe you need to make a list of people to invite over soon. Maybe you need to be more open and have eyes to see, like Chris said last week, when you interact with people so you can be hospitable and generous to people. Maybe you need to say yes to the invitation that someone extended to you. I don't know what it is, but I know that there's a step that the Holy Spirit is putting on your heart today. I know that there is. And so my encouragement, I strongly encourage you to make that step today. It's time to prepare your home for an outpouring of the Spirit. 
to the non-Christians in the room. If you're not a Christian and you're here just because you're curious, or maybe it's been a long time since you've been to church and so you feel like you're somewhere in between, you're not really sure where you stand with God or what, what is going on here. I don't know your story. Heck, maybe this is your first time ever setting foot in a church. I don't know. My prayer is that you feel welcome. Because you are. As you've seen in this message, as you heard this morning, you are welcome here. We do not see you as an outsider in the kingdom of God. You are invited to join us at the table. I don't care. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you've been, who you are. You are welcome here. You have a spot at the table. And so your action step, non-Christian in the room, is to simply receive the invitation. It's just to come and be loved to come to a table that is free from dividing lines, to come to the arms of a community that loves you, and even more so, the arms of a father that loves you and does not see you as outside, but wants to bring you in. We have a very unique action step this morning. If you couldn't think of something to do, I got something for you. We have a communion meal today. Okay, if, you, if you're new around here, we do a meal once a month. The, the first Sunday of every month, we have a meal as a community in our lobby or outside, depending on the weather. Today, we're going to be inside because it's hot as heck. We're going to be inside. We're going to be eating together. And I encourage you, every single one of you, stick around. Stick around for the meal. Sit next to people that maybe you wouldn't normally talk to. Sit next to people that you don't know. If you see someone that you do not know their name, go introduce yourself. Like, what is stopping you? Fear? Is it fear of awkwardness? Who cares if you're awkward? Nobody cares if it's awkward. Just go be with people. And so today, in our communion meal, I encourage you to sit with people that you don't know and people that you do know, because it always makes conversation better. But be hospitable to the people around you. Play host, even though this isn't necessarily your home that you live in. Can we do that? Can we try to do that? Like, it's right now. It's not like it's, it's not like you're gonna forget. literally in 10 minutes. <laughs> it's time to bring kingdom. And the way we bring kingdom is through hospitality at the table. Let's pray. God, I just ask that your spirit would pour out on this church. Lord, would you just move us to your kingdom and the what you're all about. God, you are about bringing the outsider in, bringing the sinner in, Lord, you don't look at what we've done. You just look at who we are. You look at our soul. You look at the fact that we're just created by you and you just love us so, so much. So God, would your love be embodied in us today? Today. Not later on, today. I pray that we wouldn't push this off, but I pray that we would be transformed into your likeness this morning to show hospitality to one another, show love to one another, show generosity toward one another, just like you did. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No dividing lines. Not here, Jesus. Amen.